this morning, our, uh, our text is back in the Gospel of Mark. So we're returning to the Gospel of Mark after a couple, weeks, uh, a couple months rather away. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, we're going to look at a short uh, story this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up starting in, in uh, verse 22. Mark 8, verse 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Without a doubt, the most well known English speaking hymn. I think is, is Amazing Grace, right? It's, it's, over, oh, it's almost 250 years old, but it's a song that has stood the test of time like few others, and, and I'd say many of us, or if not most of us, are familiar with the words of this song, particularly the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And the imagery there of the final two lines of that verse, this, this imagery of the lost being found and the, the blind receiving sight, these are, are two of the, the more common images in the Bible uh, of what it means to become a Christian, uh, of what it means to give your life to Christ, and, and, and for good reason. Jesus himself uses the imagery of, of the lost being found in the Gospel of Mark and some of his teaching, excuse me, in Gospel of Luke and some of his teaching. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus uses this language intentionally of the, the blind receiving sight to refer to what it is like to encounter Christ and to see what he truly is and who he truly is. Mark frequently uses language about sight and and seeing to describe those who get it, those who understand the message of the gospel, those who understand Jesus' teaching, those who understand who Jesus is. And in a similar way, Mark uses the opposite language of of blindness, or or from Mark chapter 8, verse 18, something we're going to see, those who have eyes but do not see to describe those who do not truly grasp who Jesus is, do not truly grasp the message of the gospel or Jesus' teaching. And we see this language of sight throughout the gospel of Mark. And so it's not surprising to us, it's probably inevitable to us, that eventually as we work our way through the gospel of Mark and see all of these different healings, that we would eventually come to one where Jesus heals and restores the sight of the blind. And because the picture, this word picture of sight and blindness is so important to Mark, it also is not a surprise to us that we find this healing of a blind person at the climax of Mark's gospel. The high points of Mark's gospel is where we find ourselves this morning. This passage begins to define those who are spiritually blind. Those who have eyes but do not see, and those who begin to grasp. 
the message of who Jesus truly is. And next week, we're going to look at at the climax uh, of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And we're going to touch on that a a little bit this morning to help us understand this passage. But but that focus uh, of truly seeing who Jesus is, is the, the focus of the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 9 through 16, the end of of Mark, all is focused on what does it actually mean for us to see Jesus as he really is. Now, just because this passage is an important one doesn't mean it is an easy one. As I was reading it to you just a few moments ago, uh, it it can be uh, a little surprising with with some of the things that take place in this passage. If anything, this is one of these passages in the the Bible that is, is very confusing for us and and maybe even offensive to us, and it's not any easier because there aren't any parallels in the other Gospels. The only time that we see this story in the Bible is here in the Gospel of Mark. And so as we dive into this passage, I think that I just want to remind ourselves of something that we've seen several times so far in the Gospel of Mark as we've been working our way through these first eight chapters. Oftentimes, the key to understanding a difficult passage in the Gospel of Mark is to understand the context as a whole of what came before and what is coming after that passage. And that is certainly the case for us this morning. As I've already hinted at, this passage is, is primarily, even though it's about physically, uh, a physically blind person being healed, it is primarily concerned with the healing of the spiritually blind. And that is made very clear by the question that Jesus levels at his disciples in the passage right, uh, right after and right before this passage. Right before we get to this healing of the blind man, we see this in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? What is it that the disciples fail to understand? Where is it that the disciples are blind? Well, we'll remind ourselves of this in a moment, but it's found in the passage following this healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then a few moments after that, he says, who do you say that I am? This passage is about an actual man from Bethsaida who actually lived 2,000 years ago, a man who was actually blind, a man who was actually healed by Jesus. And yet at the same time, it is an acted out parable, a very intentional decision Uh, of Jesus in order to teach his disciples and honestly to teach each and every one of us how we will answer that question. Who do you say I am? Am I blind to the truth of who Jesus really is? And that's what this passage is concerned about. Who do you say that Jesus is? is. 
And so this morning as we look at this text, we're going to do it in, in three parts. Because we've been away from the Gospel of Mark for a while, we're actually just going to remind ourselves of the, the, the thrust, the, the, the weight of, of everything Mark has been building up to, including this moment where, where this healing takes place. So we're going to spend some time just looking at the, the, the danger of spiritual blindness, we're going to remind ourselves of, of what it looks like to, to be blind spiritually from Mark 1 through Mark 8. And then I want to take a look at this actual passage of healing, this, this moment where this man is healed. And I'm going to call that the, the parable of spiritual blindness. And then I think after that, we'll just spend a few moments looking at verses 27 through 33 and giving ourselves the answer to what this parable is is about. So as we approach God's word, uh, let's, let's pray once more um, and ask for his presence to be with us. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we do so humbly. We do so knowing that it is only through your spirit that we are able to see your son as he truly is. And so this morning we ask, like the apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus thousands of years ago, that you would open the eyes of our hearts Father, we echo the words of the Gentile seekers in, in John 12 that we wish to see Jesus. And God, I ask that you would help us to see the King and all his beauty in this text this morning. It's in his name and for his glory we pray these things. Amen. I mentioned uh, earlier that this passage is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is, is a gospel that, that is really uh, pretty easy to, to divide and, and to, to find the structure of. It's been a couple months since we've looked at this. I want to just take a few moments and remind ourselves of the, the, the overall structure of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark divides into two halves, Mark 1 through 8 and then Mark 9 through 16. And all of it is hinging on this question in verse 27. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Mark writes with a purpose. Everything in chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way through chapter 8 is focused on answering that question. Who do you say that I am? Mark knows every single one of us is going to have to answer that question someday in our lives. Who do you say that I am? And so he takes the first half of this gospel to, to share story after story after story of who Jesus is. And he means to give us this overwhelming amount of evidence with the hope that everyone would come to know who Jesus truly is. And so he starts his gospel by giving us the answer. Before we even get the question, we're given the answer to who Jesus is. We're given in the beginning of, of the, the gospel of Mark four witnesses that tell us who Jesus is. Mark begins by saying himself that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Next, Mark looks at the Old Testament, and he says the Old Testament itself tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, verses 2 and 3. He follows that with the ministry of John the Baptist, and he says John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, in verses 1, Mark 1, 4 through 8. And if that isn't enough... A voice from heaven itself echoes this testimony that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Jesus begins teaching, and people are, are just dumbfounded at his mastery of God's word in Mark 1, verse 22. Jesus' teaching is, is so powerful that the demonic is forced to reveal itself, and it begrudgingly admits that Jesus is Christ. 
Lord over them, Mark 1, 23. People begin to flock to Jesus in droves, and, and Jesus heals all of them in Mark 1, verse 33. Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus alone has the power to forgive sins, Mark 2, verse 5. Jesus claims that he is the one who brings the long-awaited kingdom of God, Mark 2, verse 19. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that the rest that God instructed his people to pursue in the Old Testament just pales in comparison to the rest that can actually be found in Jesus, Mark 2, verse 26. In Mark chapter 3, we see that Jesus tells us that he is God's chosen instrument in order to bring freedom to those who are trapped in sin, those who are held captive in sin, that he's the only one who is able to do that. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Mark 4, Jesus speaks, and the wind and the waves, nature itself, obeys him instantly. Mark 4, verse 39. In Mark 5, Jesus is faced with this insurmountable army of evil, and Jesus simply speaks and is sent into oblivion, Mark 5, verse 13. Mark 5, we also see that Jesus not only has power over sickness, but Jesus also has power over death itself. He rescues a little girl, not just from the jaws of death, but from beyond the grave in Mark 5, verse 41. And then we get to Mark chapter 6, and in Mark 6, we see that Jesus feeds thousands of people in the wilderness, just like God did in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. He's proving himself in, in a not-so-subtle way that Jesus is God himself, Mark 6, verse 41. In Mark 7, we see that Jesus has come for all people, that Jesus has come to save all people, and he saves this pagan woman's daughter without even speaking in Mark chapter 7, verse 29. And not only that, but Jesus is the one who will bring God's perfect and beautiful kingdom that Jesus is the one who will one day right every wrong, the one day he will heal every disease. He will literally create heaven on earth for his people. Mark chapter 7, verse 37. And that's what takes place in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It's story after story, sign after sign after sign after sign of who Jesus is. The only question is, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to who Jesus is? And then we get to Mark chapter 8. And what happens in Mark chapter 8? Let's pick up in Mark 8 verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus has given the, the people countless signs and all of them have been ignored. No wonder Jesus sighs. And so he leaves the Pharisees and he heads for Bethsaida, leading into our passage this morning. And, and astonishingly, while he's in the boat with his disciples, we read this concerning his identity. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Here are the disciples, and they've traveled 
with Jesus all this time, and we see that they also have missed the point of who Jesus is. They've missed the significance of all that they have witnessed. They have ears, but they do not hear, like the deaf man in Mark chapter 7. They have, e- they have eyes, but they do not see, like this blind man here this morning. In spite of all of their proximity to Jesus, they are deaf and blind to who he truly is. And so this morning, as we dive into the actual meat of our passage, I just want us to pause for a moment and and, and remind ourselves of the incredible danger that faces each and every one of us. It's, It's the warning that Jesus gives to his disciples right here in this passage. It isn't surprising to us that those who are hostile to Jesus, they don't truly grasp who he is, like the Pharisees, that they're spiritually blind. That doesn't surprise us. What is surprising, and probably, if we're honest, what's frightening for us is is that those, like his disciples, those who have been with him from the very beginning, are just as blind. That without divine intervention, if Jesus were to ask them here at the beginning of our passage, who do you say I am? The disciples would be unable to answer. I don't know who you are. And here's the warning for us this morning. Spiritual blindness isn't overcome by religiosity. It isn't overcome by being religious or going to church. It isn't overcome even by proximity to Jesus as the disciples prove to us. What's more, Paul tells us in the, the second letter to the church in Corinth that we are all spiritually blind without divine intervention. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, what that passage is telling us is that it doesn't matter how many signs you see, it doesn't matter how many miracles you witness firsthand, it doesn't matter how much you go to church, it doesn't matter how much good you do without God intervening. You are blind. You have been blinded by the God of this world. And just like the dead can't raise themselves, the blind cannot give themselves sight. We need the God of light himself to open the eyes of the blind, to open my eyes and to open your eyes so that when we are faced with the question that Mark chapter 1, verse eight, uh, chapter one through chapter 8 is, is building to, this question of who do we say that Jesus is, then we can answer alongside Peter. You are the Christ. And that is, in large part, what our text is about this morning. While it's an actual story dealing with an actual person, I want to emphasize that. I think we're going to see that Jesus intentionally acts in a certain way in order to to simultaneously make this a a parable, make this a, a message for his disciples and for us as long as we are listening. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, once more. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Our text picks up right after Jesus' strong warning against unbelief, against spiritual blindness on the, on the part of his disciples and, and honestly for us as well. And then they arrive at, at Bethsaida, and this is a, a large city for that day and age, about 10,000 people. It's on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
And shortly after arriving, Jesus is met by this group, and they are bringing to him a, a blind man. Now, almost all blind people in the, um, in the first century were beggars. They were unable to do much more, so they would sit on the streets in large towns and large cities, and they'd beg for charity. What's significant here is that in our passage, it doesn't tell us that Jesus encounters this man while he is begging. It, it, it intentionally tells us that a group of people, probably his friends, bring him to Jesus. Now, that's not the main point of the passage, but just pause and consider the importance of that truth, that these people bring the man to Jesus, that this healing, this, this gift of sight, and by extension, this gift of, of spiritual sight, this would never ha- happen if it weren't for this group of friends taking the initiative to bring him to Jesus. The friends knew that they were powerless to help him, but at the same time, they had heard stories of someone who might be able to help him, and so they did all that they actually could, and they said, well, we're going to bring you to the one who can help you. We can't help you, but we know the one who can, and so we will bring you to him. And that, in its purest sense, is what sharing the gospel means. It's to recognize that we aren't able to do anything, but we can point to someone who can. It doesn't mean that we have all of the answers, but it does mean that we bring people to Jesus. Let's keep reading verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, one thing that we have noticed going through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is overwhelmingly popular with the crowds of Galilee. The crowds flock to Jesus time and time again for the chance to see the miraculous, for Jesus to do something incredible. And it's rarely because they actually want to hear what Jesus is teaching. They rarely want to hear the message of the kingdom of God. These crowds, to put it bluntly, are extremely shallow in their interest of Jesus. They only want to see something that they can talk about later, that they can talk about around the dinner table, or they can impress their friends and say, hey, you know what, I was there when Jesus healed that person. There's this very surface-level engagement with Jesus. No one is interested in a message that actually requires them to, to change, a message that actually transforms their hearts. And so it's not surprising at all that Jesus takes this man, and the first thing he does is he brings him out of the village. He brings him away from the crowds. This is an act of compassion in its its purest sense. He's showing this man that, that to Jesus, he matters. He's not just some prop in Jesus's plan for uh, for marketing himself to the, the people of Galilee. Jesus actually cares about him. He's not just going to use him to make himself more famous, and so he brings him away from the crowds. I think there's another reason Jesus brings this man away from the crowds, and that is not only because it's an act of of compassion here, but it's also because this healing is meant for a a different audience. It's meant for his blind disciples. If this healing is an acted-out parable, then it is a message to Jesus' disciples themselves of their own great need for Jesus to open their eyes. Now, verse 23 is a, is a shocking verse, isn't it? After all, as we, we look at, at this verse, uh, we, we, we see right after I just got done saying, oh, this is a, you know, Jesus is being compassionate. He's leading the man out of the village because he wants to give him his full attention. And then what do we see right after that? Well, Jesus spits on him. 
It's a shocking verse to us. It seems like Jesus is, is being far from compassionate here. And just like today, if you spit on someone today, that's a sign of offense. It's a sign of disdain. You don't spit on people you love unless you are a newborn. You can talk to them about what they mean by that. You don't spit on people you love. You spit on people that you curse. So what's going on here? I think the, the best explanation is found by looking at another healing in the Gospel of Mark. Another healing there where Jesus spits. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. We looked at this in early June. There's a number of parallels between Mark 7, 31 through 37 and Mark 8, 22 through 26. Uh, it, it's very clear as you see these parables that they're meant to be read together. They're meant to be read as a pair. And in between those two, there is this statement from Jesus to his disciples, Mark chapter 8, verse 18, where he says, Do you not yet understand? Do you have eyes but do not see? Do you have ears but do not hear? Right in between Jesus healing a deaf man and Jesus about to heal a blind man. Both of them are only found in the Gospel of Mark. Both of them uh, tell us of a healing predicted in the, in the book of Isaiah about God establishing his kingdom on the earth. Isaiah 35, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In both of these passages or in both of these stories, Jesus uses spit as a part of his healing. So what's going on here? Well, in both passages, Jesus is about to heal someone who has lost at least one of their senses, for the deaf man in Mark chapter 7, we talked about this a couple months ago, Jesus can't explain to him with words about what he is about to do. Sign language doesn't exist at this time, and so he does the only thing that he can do. He acts out what he is about to do. He, he uses a form of sign language to communicate his compassion for the deaf man. And I think that something similar is happening here with the blind man. Jesus is engaging this, other, this man's other senses, specifically his sense of touch in order to communicate his compassion. Now, in the first century, there was a lot of superstition about magic. A lot of people believed in magic, and specifically in the use of magic words in order to heal people. And if you notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't say anything to heal him. He spits on him, he touches him, but Jesus is going out of his way in order to, to prove to a culture that believes in magic that this is no source of magic. This is no mere superstition that's about to heal this man. It is the very power of God himself. Now, not only is the spit shocking in verse 23, but there's something else that I find really shocking here, and that is Jesus' question at the end of verse 23. What does Jesus say after he has spit and touched the man? Well, he says, do you see anything? Do you see anything? Well, that, that's something that Jesus has never done before. Jesus has never asked people, hey, did it work? Was I able to do it this time? He never doubts in his ability to heal people. He never asks people, hey, hey, how'd it go? 
because he doesn't need to. This is entirely out of character for Jesus. He's all-powerful, as we've seen time and time again in Mark chapter 1 through chapter 8, and he does exactly what he intends to do. So why does Jesus say, hey, did it work? Do you see anything? Is he beginning to doubt himself? Is he beginning to doubt his power to heal? Let's keep reading. Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus' first attempt, and I, I use quotations with that very intentionally because I don't think that that's a fair representation of what's going on here. It's not like Jesus tried and failed the first time. Jesus is doing something very intentional. This, this first touch of Jesus is only partially successful. Jesus has to touch the man again before he's able to truly see. And what on earth is going on here? What on earth has happened? Is Jesus really unable to heal the man correctly the first time? And the answer is not that Jesus suddenly lost his power. It's not that he suddenly came into contact with a disease that is a little bit more formidable than he realized, and so he's got to muster up his strength in order to, to really get at it this next time. Well, the, the, the answer of what's going on here is, is hinted at in this question in verse 23. The fact that Jesus, for the first time and the only time when he's about to heal someone, says, did it work? Do you see anything? Jesus is, is expecting this answer. He's expecting the man to say, well, I, I see people, but, but not perfectly. I, I see them like trees that are walking around. You see, the fact that Jesus even asks this question shows that he knows that something different than normal is happening here. That Jesus has planned to do something different than normal. Now, I've mentioned that this healing is an acted-out parable. It's a way for Jesus to communicate a deeper truth to his disciples. And if he wasn't trying to communicate something deeper to his disciples, then he no doubt would have just healed the man like he normally does. It would have just been instant, and it would have been perfect the first time. He could have easily healed this man the way he has healed countless others before. So what is Jesus trying to communicate here? Well, he wants his disciples to, to see who he truly is. And that's what we see starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Somewhere along the road to Caesarea Philippi, the, the disciples, they may be reflecting on this moment with this healing of the blind man, the two-stage healing. The disciples begin to grasp who Jesus is. To use language from our passage, their eyes are opened and they begin to see. Those who were once blind to who Jesus truly is now begin to grasp the person of Jesus. There's no other explanation. 
how we get from Mark chapter 8, verses 17 through 21. And Jesus said to them, do you not yet perceive or do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you, having eyes, do you not yet see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? There's no way we can get from that to verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. There's no way for those who are once spiritually blind, who now begin to see, to come to that sight without Jesus' intervention. Matthew makes explicit what Mark is communicating here via a parable. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Just like the man in Mark 8 who was blind until Jesus intervenes and opens his eyes, so also are the disciples, and by extension all of us, blind until God intervenes and reveals himself to us. But that still doesn't communicate or give us the answer to, to why Jesus heals this man in two steps, in two parts here in the Gospel of Mark. If Jesus is just trying to, to communicate, hey, you need me to heal you, to open your eyes so you can see me for who I truly am, he still could have just healed the man. So what is Jesus doing here? Keep reading in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What we see here in these verses, and we're going to look at them more in depth next week, we see this transition in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples have reached the right conclusion in verses 29 and 30 that Jesus is the Christ. Their eyes have been opened. They are no longer fully spiritually blind. They know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he is the one who comes to establish God's kingdom on the earth. But as we see very clearly here, they have no idea what that means. They have no idea what it means that Jesus is the Christ. They believe that if Jesus is the Christ, then he will come with a conquering army and he will slaughter the Romans and he will lead the nation of Israel to this glorious victory. They believe that the kingdom of God will be built on the blood of Jesus' enemies. And Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God will come through blood. But it won't be through the blood of his enemies, but through the blood of that he shed on the cross. And this disconnect in, in Jesus' mission, that he, that he came to give himself as a ransom for many, and, and the disciples' misconception of Jesus' mission, that he comes to slaughter and conquer, that's where we see this disconnect here between Jesus and Peter. Mark 8, 27 through 30, we see that Jesus recognizes, acknowledges before his disciples that he, yes, is the Christ. And then we get to verse 31, and he tells them that what that means he says, it means I will go to the cross. 
And because Jesus' disciples are still partially blind, still not able to fully see, Peter rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus gives his harshest rebuke in all of the Gospels back to Peter because Peter is still blind, at least in part, to the mission of God. And it's this battle against spiritual blindness that the disciples, they, they see, but they only see partially, to use the language of our, of our passage, they, they only see, but, but like trees are, are out walking around. That's the tension that we see in the rest of the gospel of Mark. The disciples have a sliver of understanding as to who Jesus is, but they cannot grasp the, the fullness of who Jesus is. They can't understand that he has come to give up his life in order to establish his kingdom, that he has to die in order to save people from sin. The first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark all wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? And then we get our answer here in Mark chapter 8. And then the rest of the Gospel is all centered around this question. Okay, we know that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does that mean? And it isn't until after the resurrection that the disciples begin to grasp what that means. In other words, it isn't until after the resurrection that the disciples can see Jesus clearly for who he truly is. No longer only partially able to see, but fully able to see Jesus in all of his glory. So what is the meaning of this passage? I think it's simply this. The only cure for spiritual blindness is Jesus. The only cure for spiritual blindness is Jesus. Just like it takes a touch from Jesus in order to heal the physically blind, it takes a, a touch from Jesus, from God himself, in order to open the eyes of those who are blind spiritually. You will never be able to see Jesus for who he truly is Without Jesus opening your eyes, the only cure for spiritual blindness is Jesus. And so, as we close, just consider what that means for us today. First is this. I think that this passage is, is pretty humbling for us, isn't it? It's very humbling to recognize that you and I are powerless to open our own eyes to see Jesus who, as who he truly is. It is humbling to realize that this isn't just a one and done kind of enlightenment either. It takes multiple touches from Jesus to open the eyes of his disciples, and it'll take multiple touches from Jesus to open the eyes of, of those who do not believe in the gospel, including us. This battle against spiritual blindness in our lives is a lifelong battle. It's a lifelong battle against unbelief. It's a lifelong battle against cynicism and doubt. It is a battle that is waged against our own desire to make Jesus comfortable, to make him the way we want him to be, to make him a conquering king, not a suffering servant, like for the disciples. It is a war where we gain ground and then we lose ground when our hearts are obedient and when our hearts are fickle. 
We don't need Jesus to just touch us once and then we're, we have eyes that are open. We need him to continually and increasingly open our eyes to the truth of who he is. We can't possibly see Jesus for who he truly is without Jesus revealing himself to us. This passage is humbling because we don't like to admit our own powerlessness. We don't like to admit that salvation is not in our hands, but here we have to come face to face with it. Without Jesus, we are like the disciples in Mark 8, 18. Those who have eyes but do not see. Those who have ears but cannot hear. And yet at the same time, this passage is, is very humbling. It is also very good news. Because Jesus is compassionate. Jesus longs to reveal himself as he truly is to people. Jesus delights in opening the eyes of the spiritually blind just as much as he delights in opening the eyes of the physically blind. And what if we were to let this shape our prayers? We just got done with a sermon series on prayer, on, on focusing on the kingdom of God and, and on the, the praying, the, the prayers that, that God gives us in his word. What if, what if we let this shape our prayers for God's priorities? Many of us are familiar with the, the story of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul used to persecute the church, and then in Acts chapter 9, we see the story of him going to persecute the church in Damascus, and what happens? He's blinded. Very intentional. He's blinded. And it isn't until later when he hears the gospel, three days later, that he can see again. And Mark, or in Acts chapter 9 tells us that something like scales fall from his eyes. The spiritually blind has his eyes opened because of the gospel. And then we see Paul later on in his life say this for the church in Ephesus as he's praying for them. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is, what is Paul's primary concern in that passage is he's praying for this church. He, he gives thanks for them, but then after that, he says, God, I just send your spirit to reveal yourself to them. Open their eyes, the eyes of their hearts, enlighten them so that they can see you more. If Jesus is the only cure for spiritual blindness, and we are all blind without Jesus, then this prayer comes the prayer of highest priority for ourselves, for our families, for those who are around us, that Jesus would open the eyes of the blind. And this morning, we have an incredible opportunity to celebrate that. I mentioned earlier that we are going to be having some baptisms here in a few moments. We're going to celebrate these baptisms. We don't believe here at Crosswinds that baptism is, is something that, that in and of itself saves a person, but we do believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward working of God, and that inward working of God is the spiritually blind are given sight 
in order to see who Jesus truly is. And if you're able to join us this morning, we'd love for you to join us out at Scharnberg. And, and like I said, we'll talk about whether we're actually doing this. I wrote this sermon before the weather. So um, we'll, we'll talk about that here after the service. But we'd love for you to celebrate alongside us, to, to put on flesh the significance of this passage, that those who were once blind now see Jesus for who he truly is. Because Jesus delights to open the eyes of the blind. There's this old church in Scotland, and uh, it has this simple plaque in, in their pulpit. It's a, a traditional church. They just have this, this simple plaque in the pulpit that's it's very visible for no one but the preacher. And it's just one simple phrase. And it's, it's, a, it's a reminder to the person who is delivering God's word of what their highest priority should be. And it's written as a request from the congregation to the pastor, to the preacher. And it simply says this, Sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. And that's our heart's desire this morning. It's our heart's desire every morning when we gather together, when we are scattered across our communities for the rest of the week, that we would see Jesus, that we would have the eyes of our hearts open to see him for who he truly is, the king of glory who gave himself up, that we might enter into his kingdom. We would see Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask that you would open our eyes so that way we could see you for who you truly are. Help us, God, because we need you. Help us to pursue you, to make this a prayer for ourselves daily, for our family, for our friends, for those that we know, that you would reveal yourself, that you would open the eyes of the blind. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.